Welcome to One Hour in the Past, a podcast series presented by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre, hosted by me, Kathleen Powell, Curator and Supervisor of Historical Services, and Adrian Petrie, Visitor Services Coordinator. Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the Indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by Indigenous peoples for millennia, and we would like to honour the centuries of Indigenous peoples who walked on Turtle Island before us. As museum professionals, our jobs are many-fold. Managers, curators, interpreters, researchers, and much, much more. We often find ourselves pining for some more interesting and perhaps wild history in our daily work. Our podcast begins with the idea that a simple search for information can lead you in some strange and wonderful directions. Like Alice's adventures in Wonderland, historical research has a tendency to lead you down a winding rabbit hole that takes you off your original path towards some new and amazing historical places. Each of us has had just one hour to research a topic. 60 minutes, that's it. We research separately and then come back together to discuss where one hour in the past has taken us. Welcome to series four. We're so excited to continue cooking along with our new ingredients by shaking, stirring, and folding in a slightly new format and some special guests. We hope you've enjoyed your time in the historical kitchen with us so far. Just like a good roast in the slow cooker, the topics we research usually need more than just an hour to research. So this year we're following a different recipe and focusing the entire series on one topic, food including spices, mealtimes, cookbooks, military rations, preserving food, and restaurants. We're also excited to welcome some special guest museum professionals from our neighborhood museums here in Niagara to help us carry the ounces, teaspoons, and tablespoons, cups, pounds, and even bushels of research we'll be cooking with on the podcast this year. If you're joining us for the first time on One Hour in the Past, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and head back in the archives to catch the other episodes of historical adventures on topics like hats, prime ministers, soda water, maps, Thanksgiving, daylight savings time, telephones, stuffed animals, printing, and even the FLQ October crisis. On today's episode of One Hour in the Past, we're excited to welcome Sarah Kaufman, the managing director and curator of the Niagara on the Lake Museum. So for today's podcast, we welcome Sarah Kaufman, who is from the Niagara-on-the-Lake Museum. I'll give you a little bit of a bio of Sarah and who she is. She's born and raised in the Niagara region, and Sarah holds an Honors Bachelor of Arts degree specializing in history and politics and a Master's in Public History from the University of Western Ontario. She has worked in over seven of Niagara's heritage institutions and became the Managing Director at the Niagara-on-the-Lake Museum in 2010. Sarah is responsible for day-to-day operations, implementing board-directed strategies and policies, as well as the management, research, and exhibition of the museum's collection. And she's curated a number of exhibits, some awesome exhibits, by the way. You should all go to the Niagara-on-the-Lake Museum, uh, including a few digital exhibits on General Niagara-on-the-Lake history, the War of 1812, the First World War, and much, much more. 
Uh, Sarah also enjoys participating in local heritage projects in the community and has participated in projects such as the Landscape of Nations, the Voices of Freedom Park, and various commemorative committees. Welcome, Sarah. We're so happy to Welcome, have you here. Sarah. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I love working with St. Catharines Museum. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to have another uh, Western public history alumni <laughs> on the podcast. Um, you guys outnumber yeah, that's me awesome. today. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do outnumber you. That's funny. <laughs> All right. So our regular listeners know that we usually start our podcasts with definition of what we're looking at today. And today we are looking at mealtime. The definition makes me laugh. It is the time at which a meal is eaten. <laughs> so I decided to break it down. Um, so I, I didn't look at the definition of time because we don't need to do that. Everybody knows what time is. <laughs> and that could get into an existential conversation that we don't need to. But meal, any of the regular occasions in a day when a reasonably large amount of food is eaten, such as breakfast, lunch, or dinner. In this way, meal time is actually kind of redundant if we think about it, because meal time and meal generally refer to the same thing. It's also defined as food eaten on a regular uh, on regular occasions so maybe not associated to a time but at regular intervals hmm. the word meal derives from the old english meal it's got <laughs> weird accents and the a is before the e but i'm not going to get into old imagine an old english word spelling of meal that's what it is and so it's also in the sense of measure so the old english word meal meant measure uh, and surviving words such as piecemeal uh, have measure in that. So piecemeal measure, measurement, measure taken one at a time, basically, from that uh, old English word, which was Germanic in origin. The early sense of meal involved the notion, notion of fixed time, and it's compared with the Dutch mal, which also means meal, uh, portion, uh, which means more of a like a portion of time, and the German mal, which means time, and then mal, spelled like mahler, M-A-H-L, which means meal. So there's this like intertwining of meal and time uh, together in all these root uh, roots for the word meal. And I should also add that we're not talking about the other meal, though we could be talking about it later, which is the edible part of any grain or pulse ground to powder, <laughs> such as cornmeal. I didn't even which make could that be connection. Cornmeal <laughs> corn could be part of a meal. That's true. What did you have for your meal? Oh, I had meal. I had meal for my meal. <laughs> cornmeal. <laughs> anyway, there's our definition. And uh, Sarah, as you most likely know, uh, we start off by just saying where we started and where we ended up, and then we go back and go through everybody's research. So um, the order I have today is uh, Kathleen, Adrian, and Sarah. So Kathleen, where did you start and where did you end up? Uh, I started with a cookbook called The Cook Not Mad, which was the first ah, Canadian Cook cookbook. Uh, it was published in Kingston in 1831. Uh, and I ended, the very last sentence that I wrote here was uh, about teas and high teas. Um, and what foods included in that. Nice. Um, I started with my favorite meal of the day, breakfast. Uh, and I ended with the suspension of all day breakfast at McDonald's in 2020. 
very well, recent history. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty angry about it. Shame. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, Shame. Sarah. <laughs> well, I started, so I went pretty literal and started with, um, I'm trying to find it here, the article that I found about sort of the history of mealtimes, which I found fascinating, um, going through like when people ate their meals. And um, it was from the history magazine, uh, the British history magazine. Uh, and then I ended off with um, doing a bit of a survey with my family about their meal times and what they do to kind of compare what meal times used to be and what do people do now. And I have a big family, and I really love that meal time was picked because meal time is a big thing with my family. Um, there's about uh, well, now there's about 24 in terms of my immediate family, so I'm wow. one of five kids. So there was a lot of response back from those people about when they eat their meal and what's their biggest <laughs> meal of the day and something like that. So I tried to make that connection there. That's awesome. That is awesome. This is going to be a All great right. discussion. It's going to be super. All right, Kathy, you're up. Why don't you take us through your research? Oh, right. Okay. So similar to our last episode where I started with a uh, an old cookbook, uh, this time around I started with a cookbook called The Cook Not Mad, which is the first Canadian cookbook uh, written by James McFarlane. Uh, in Kingston, Upper Canada in 1831. Mm. I was interested to know if there was anything in The Cook Not Mad, uh, and I chose this one in particular because it was the first Canadian cookbook, the last cookbook I used in the uh, the last episode about spices was the uh, um, the first American cookbook. So it was a North American cookbook rather than specifically Canadian. I was interested to know if they mentioned mealtimes at all in this cookbook. Um, because cookbooks weren't just recipe books, they were also household manuals, and they helped to give you advice on how you were supposed to run your household. And so I was thinking, well, in Canada, what were they doing? Were they, well, how many meals did we have at that point in Canada in 1831? What does it say? Um, how come cookbooks don't do that anymore? Like, <laughs> I need someone to tell me how to run my house. Well, you need Maybe to, I should write one. <laughs> you could. You could do that. That's true. I could stage it as a cookbook, but it's actually just Adrian's Tips for Living. Well, well, there you go. You could just call it that, Adrian's Tips for Living. <laughs> you, get the, you get the etiquette books, though, right? You get some etiquette yeah. books. It's true. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, so this book did not help me at all about mealtimes in Canada. So I still had no idea where we were. But um, it, what it did say, though, was that temperance in the quality and quantity of our diet contributes more to our health and comfort than we are aware of. Uh, and that it was less important what kind of food we ate than the quantity and the mode of its preparation for the stomach. That's really all it told me about, uh, really, meal times that uh, you shouldn't eat too much, essentially. <laughs> so that, that didn't help me. Um, so still on this whole, <laughs> on the whole, uh, well, how many meals did people eat in the middle of the 19th century? I went to uh, Mrs. Beaton, of course. So um, Mrs. Beaton is my... Uh, Manual of choice this year, since I'm doing a whole episode, whole podcast, or sorry, a whole blog uh, um, series on Mrs. Beaton, and uh, I wanted to see what did Mrs. Beaton have to say about meals, uh, and she actually has an entire chapter yeah. on meals, and right. so I was hoping that there would be more to my sources, but I spent the rest of the hour 
looking, reading Mrs. Beaton's chapter, which is humongous, and learning about meals. In fact, I didn't even get to the end of the chapter when I got to the end of the hour. <laughs> um, if you've read Mrs. Beaton at all, the book is over 2,000 pages, and it's like the phone book, if people remember <laughs> the phone book. The pages are very thin, and the letters are very small, so there's a lot of writing on each page. But So what does Mrs. Beaton say about meals? Uh, she said that they are very important and the importance and arrangement of meals is incredibly important. Uh, she says, one important consideration with regards to meals is their regularity. And I'm going to quote here, a meal that we have waited for an hour too long is one that we fail to appreciate. And while to the healthy, irregularity is dangerous, to the mm -hmm. delicate, it is injurious. It's very, very important to eat your meals at exactly the same time every day, which, <laughs> oh, to be no. honest, I am totally, when it comes to lunch, like, it's almost like my body is like, it's 12 o'clock, stop everything you're doing right now, I don't care what you're doing, go eat right now. And so I totally am on with Mrs. Beaton at the lunch hour. It's so interesting because <laughs> if I don't eat, and Kathy, you know this, if I don't eat at 12 o'clock or 12.30 and I forget, which happens a lot, <laughs> and if somebody doesn't tell me to eat lunch, usually, I won't. And I will just completely forget about it. And then I'll go to eat my lunch at 3 o'clock, but I won't be hungry anymore. Uh, my stomach's oh grumbling my by that point. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people that I get hangry. That term, hangry, <laughs> if I don't eat at a certain time, I'm like, do not talk to me. I just need to eat. And I figured that out when I was younger, doing a lot of traveling. Um, and, you mm. know, you're traveling, you're not paying attention maybe to your meal time because you want to go and get to this place before it closes or that place by that time. And I would get hangry. So I had set times and I didn't realize it when I was young. Now I get it. Although I don't always eat my meals at the right times. So anyways, because I... <laughs> I'm always the last one to eat with my kids and stuff like that, right? <laughs> well, Mrs. Beaton says that it's important for you to determine your meal times and then insist on punctuality for everyone in the household. Wow. So uh, as the head of your household, Sarah, your job is to determine the meal times and make sure everyone is punctually sitting at their spot at that meal time and that your servants are serving out your meal <laughs> at that Oh, my time. goodness. I would love to have servants. I can barely keep my kids at the table at mealtime. They're too young. Yeah. They're like, see ya. <laughs> yeah. So the, she goes on a little bit and talks about different methods of serving meals uh, because there were kind of two popular methods. This book, uh, this version of Mrs. Beaton is from the turn of the 20th century. So it's 1912. Um, so there were two kind of popular methods of uh, having a meal set on the table. One would be to have all the dishes on the table and then if you had a huge household your servants would help you take things from those dishes at the table and then you would remove them all for the next course and reset. Uh, or there's the Downton Abbey kind of meal service where the servants go around with the dish to every single person and they scoop out some potatoes and put that on your plate and then the next person comes along, next servant comes along with the gravy and pours the gravy on, um, which is called dinner a la russe, so Russian service essentially. Uh, but then uh, Mrs. Beaton goes on and says that pleasant and appropriate surroundings contribute largely to the enjoyment of a meal. And as our meals, whether elaborate or simple, are an important item in the sum total of domestic happiness, 
the greatest possible care should be bestowed on their preparation and service. So uh, pleasant and appropriate surroundings, very important to your meal, which uh, <laughs> I mean, this isn't news. Uh, I remember people saying, you know, even well, they, people, some people still say this. You shouldn't sit in front of the TV while you're eating or whatever, right? And so uh, Mrs. Beaton was not saying anything that we wouldn't find common in some uh, circles today. <laughs> yeah. Okay. M- Mrs. Beaton would totally be very upset with me. Mrs. Beaton goes on to talk about... Uh, if you're a housekeeper, the housekeeper, the house the mistress of the house, uh, what you should do for your for the meal. This is really about dinner. Now we're talking a little bit more towards dinner. She hasn't said what the meal meals are yet, but she specifically says dinner in this thing. She says in giving dinner, a dinner, it's better to have a simple meal, which one knows will be properly cooked and served than to risk anything elaborate for it is difficult to appear utterly unconcerned. Uh, anyone who's watched Bridget Jones's diary, where she uh, <laughs> she makes I think pink, <laughs> she makes pink leek soup or something like that in the uh, the movie, yeah. uh, because she's trying a meal that's far too complicated for her uh, her dinner party, uh, would understand this. And so even back in 1912, Mrs. Beaton was saying cook what you know don't go crazy when you have a dinner party because a you might screw it up and then b you're gonna be way too stressed about whether or not you did a half decent job that you will totally ruin your dinner uh, oh, i <laughs> agree with that i agree with that 100 <laughs> percent. yeah uh, but she also says that temperature in the room is a very important subject that is often overlooked which is kind of true I mean, there's nothing worse than sitting in a din- at a dinner party where you're just totally overheated. Everybody's so warm they can't even take it, and they're almost passing out from the heat, or it's too cold. Um, but normally, I think at a dinner, any dinner parties I ever go to, it seems like it's too hot. Way like, too hot God, all the dying. time. The candles Plus are feeding, burning everything up. And yeah, and you're feeding <laughs> alcohol to people, and that just makes people hotter. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so then uh, Mrs. Beaton goes on a little bit of a tangent. She kind of does like what we do in our podcast. She goes on little tangents and then brings it back. She goes on a little bit of a tangent about table arrangements uh, and how uh, you should take effort with your table arrangement in every meal, no matter what the size. So however simple the meal <laughs> and however coarse the texture of the cloth, it should be clean. You always should have a tablecloth free from creases and arranged smoothly with the center fold forming a line <laughs> all i'm thinking i don't is even have a table, table. <laughs> this is beaten would think i'm such a failure that's all it, this is making me think i'm such a failure and cry <laughs> well she also said that your tablecloths and table napkins should be as good as quality means will afford and they should all match <laughs> this is so depressing <laughs> Uh, and uh, <laughs> this is something I I thought that was interesting. And you know what? I think that uh, maybe like one generation ahead of me, uh, you know, would have totally understood this because it seems like everyone that's my parents' age or older uh, has full sets of all of these things. And I have them now because I inherited them, not necessarily because I went out and bought them, but these people all had matching tablecloths, napkins, like cloth napkins, and all the whole gamut would have been totally common. And some of them even told me those were things that they'd gotten in their like trousseau part of their, when they got married. Um, 
so for us today, Mrs. Beaton's advice maybe doesn't uh, really resonate so much, but it would have, you know, 50 years ago for sure. It's not that long ago that a tablecloth with cloth napkins was pretty common. I think that it'll be probably have to do too with um, around the time when more women are getting into the workplace, right? That's kind of yeah. interesting if you do that comparison because and stuff that I research too, which I'm sure we'll get into is just you know, as more women get into the workplace, they're spending less time prepping on the meals and making it pretty uh, at the dinner table. And like me, I come home at 5.30 and I'm starving. And I'm like, <laughs> anything, like, is dinner ready yet? You know, have you started? <laughs> so it's completely changed even from, you know, that generation to now. Not to mention the fact that you don't have any servants to wash your linens for you. <laughs> so, you know, every right? time if you're using fresh tablecloth and cloth napkins every single meal, imagine how much laundry you would have to do on top of all the rest of the laundry you have in your household. <laughs> I remember, too, like being like like shoving food down my face, getting home from school and then turning around and going back out for sports or cubs or, or whatever. Right. So like. We don't have time for a 12th course, Mrs. Beaton. We have to get to <laughs> hockey. We have to get to soccer, uh, you know. And then also, like, my dad would work super late sometimes. I remember falling asleep in my food um, because we waited till, like, 8 o'clock to eat. So We were to uh, <laughs> totally the opposite. My dad was at work, shift work in a factory, and he actually started work, like, at a ridiculous time of day, <laughs> like some stupid time, like 6 o'clock or something like that right. in the morning. And, like... I was getting home from school at four o'clock and we're like, dinner's almost on the table. <laughs> so <laughs> we're ready to eat like five o'clock, dinner's on the table every yeah. day. Uh, so oh my gosh. yeah, it's, I guess it's just what you know, right? Um, yeah. One thing Mrs. Bean does say, which I had never really thought about consciously was a good rule is to allow 24 inches for each person's accommodation at the table. Ooh, yes. 24 inches doesn't seem like it's all that much when you really think about it, but apparently if you're having a dinner party, you better give everyone two feet, at least. Um, so. Especially if you have a left-handed person yes, sitting next a, to the yeah. right of a right-handed person. Or should I say a left-hand, oh, so a right-handed person yes, sitting yeah. to the left of a left-handed person. I'm a lefty That's, and I hate that, yes. I, I, it's, yeah. it's really challenging. Uh, anyway, so she goes on a little bit about how much space everybody should have at the dinner table and that you don't want to be crowded in. But then she did actually get down to the brass tacks of meal times and talked a little bit about each meal. Actually, she talked a lot about each meal. So I'm not going to go through a lot. I'm just going to give a little bit. So breakfast, your favorite meal of the day, Adrian. Uh, for her, the moral and physical welfare of man mankind depends largely on its breakfast. Wow. She puts a lot of emphasis on breakfast. Uh, she says... A being well-fed and warmed is naturally on better terms with himself and his surroundings than one whose mind and body are being taxed by the discomfort and annoyance of badly cooked or insufficient food. So, breakfast is very important, according to mm. Mrs. Beaton. She does go on and on about what breakfast should be and all of that, um, but I didn't, didn't go there. Uh, I wanted to find out what's the next meal. Next meal is luncheon, which is derived from an old English word meaning a lump of bread taken from the loaf. Which I thought was interesting. So basically, a sandwich. Uh, this is a repast at noon, according to Mrs. Beaton. So luncheon is lunch for us, uh, and ordinarily, luncheons as a rule have fewer courses than dinner. But in almost uh, in most other respects, they are almost identical. Can, it's interesting too that because luncheon is still a word, and to me, luncheon means something particular, like 
you know, we're a big group of people yes. eating lunch together and maybe you're right, there's more than one course. Uh, whereas lunch is like me at my desk eating salad. <laughs> if we're going to luncheon, like, come to the luncheon. Like, it's true. you know, now it's, it's still a thing, but it's like a, an, the word like changed meaning completely, I think. Yeah, that's kind of neat. She also so said. Historians, historians in 100 years are going to do a podcast about luncheon versus lunch. Yeah, that would be an interesting one. Uh, so she also says that luncheon may consist uh, of the cold remains of the previous night's dinner cut into portions suitable for serving, which I thought was super, really funny, actually. I know nowadays we cannot get past this idea, like, we have a microwave, you can just heat everything up. Think about it in the, you know, Mrs. Beaton's day, you didn't have that option, which I thought was kind of fun. So all I can think about was chicken pot pie, (laughs) chopped up into little squares, (laughs) stacked on a plate, so you can take that, or, you know, your ham from the night before, (laughs) sliced up and on a plate. Um, so essentially, you ha- it's basically taking the leftovers and slicing them up small for, for everyone at the table. Uh, so I like luncheon. I think luncheon's kind of cool. Um, but then she goes on and talks a little bit about picnics. She goes on this weird little tangent about picnics. Uh, and that the one thing I found really amusing about her picnics was, she said, care in choosing congenial guests and that at a mixed party, one sex does not predominate is very important in a picnic. A well-arranged picnic is one of the pleasantest forms of entertainment. So, like everybody, pick good people and don't have too many of one gender over the other if if you really want to have a good picnic. Uh, But she does talk about, you know, what should be part of your picnic. but she doesn't go into much about that. I think that's part of like the recipes part of her book, but she talks a little bit about it. And then the re- a lot of the re- a good chunk of the chapter is about dinner, uh, which she she goes on these little weird historical tangents at the beginning of lots of sections of her book um, and talks about the history of dinner and the Greeks and blah, 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 and goes on and on and on about it. Um, and so I didn't have enough time to really spend taking tons of notes on the history of dinner and how the Greeks started dinner and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but she did talk about the order of courses for a modern dinner, Ooh, which good. I thought was super interesting. So uh, let's see if you can ha- if you have all of these courses in your modern dinner. Nope. There are seven, by the way. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh actually, there's seven in a- another one. It's really eight because one course isn't really called a course. It's the hors d'oeuvres. Right. So before dinner, you got to have a snack. Before you start so orders i do snack before dinner so that's good <laughs> i wouldn't call it an order you can if you want to be really she oh about it <laughs> a handful of mixed nuts and some cereals <laughs> so there's your hors d'oeuvres uh, and then your first course should be the soup uh, second course the fish third course should be entrees she doesn't really define what that is oh actually what if your what if your entree is a fish so you have like fish and then fish? I don't think your entree is supposed to be a fish. So, okay. <laughs> I don't have Mrs. Beaton with me today, so I can't even drag right. it open and look. Um, fourth qu- course should be joints. You mean you don't have the book with you today? Yes. Well, no, Mrs. I don't have the book with me or her. <laughs> the way you said that made it sound like you were going to, Yeah, she's not, you know, she's not here write her a letter. Yeah, she's definitely not alive. Okay. She's not alive. Okay. So fourth course is joints, then poultry and game. Joints being meat? Yeah, red meat. Okay. So first red meat, then poultry, and then game. Game meat. So That's a lot. basically fourth course is all meat. 
but you can't put them all out at the same time. You got to put them out in that order. So joints, poultry, and game. Fifth is sweets. Six is cheese and celery, which I thought was incredibly specific. Like celery just by itself. Celery. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, huh. And then seventh is dessert, which should be tastefully arranged fruits that are most in season. Boring. <laughs> yeah. Well, you get all the good stuff in sweets, to be honest. Right? So. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you've already eaten all the cookies and as the cakes. As long as there's pie. Yeah. <laughs> So you think this would be the end of meals, but no, 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 there's more. Spelling. There's still several pages left at the end of this, which I have not gotten oh through gosh. yet, but I did get to the very start of teas and high teas. Uh, and there is actually something called family tea. And the hours for family tea may vary in many households, but are generally governed by the time of the dinner that has preceded them and the kind of supper partaken afterwards. So it could be at six or seven, or it could be at five or six, depending on what time you have supper at. So you're gonna have dinner, which is lunch, then you're gonna have tea, and your family tea, and then you're gonna have supper later on. What is supposed to, and this is the very last thing I got. I didn't really go in too much into high tea, although it's a super interesting topic. I had to stop because we were at an hour and I didn't wanna cheat. Uh, the very last thing I wrote down, though, was things that needed to be included in your tea should be bread and butter and cake. Very, very important. Bread and butter is always a thing. And cake. I mean, always cake. the thing I always think about with bread and butter is because I grew up with this is like white Wonder Bread bread with butter on it. And I'm like, that's totally not what Mrs. <laughs> Bean is talking about. It's probably really good bread. <laughs> nice butter but uh um and then you should also potentially have bread and cheese and maybe beer and wine if you wish as part of your high tea but obviously you're gonna have tea as well so that's where my research took me sorry mrs beaton i wasn't able to get to the end of your chapter but uh um, that's okay it was very interesting <laughs> oh boy mrs beaton visits from beyond the grave all right <laughs> Okay, my turn. Great idea. All right, so I started with my favorite meal of the day, breakfast. It's my favorite because the menu is fairly straightforward. There's not a lot of options. You don't have to make decisions. I don't like cooking, so I have the same thing every day. <laughs> and I don't really... And there isn't many ways to... Unless you're being super inventive and you have time for that, there isn't many ways to go off the track. Um and then the other thing is that, uh, yeah, so that's, a, that's, my, that's my favorite meal of the day. So hmm. of the mealtimes, breakfast has the most controversial history with lots of indecision throughout the last 4,000 years, whether it was good for your health or detrimental to your health. So Mrs. Beaton says it's vital. It's the most yeah. important meal of the day. It wasn't always like that, Mrs. Beaton. Most historians agree that breakfast was not really a formal meal until about the 17th century, but many historical civilizations had a name for early, uh, for eating, sorry. Uh, many early, many historical civilizations had a name for eating after waking up. And of course, that's where the word breakfast comes from, refers to the breaking of the overnight fast. Uh, because you're, you can't eat when you're asleep unless you're a midnight snacker. <laughs> I'm not a midnight snacker, but some people are a midnight snacker. Uh, all right, so I thought we could play a little game. Uh, the game here is I'm going to give you the name of breakfast in one of these civilizations, and you need to guess the civilization. Oh. 
And I'm not going to go in chronological order. Oh, no. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Educational game. <laughs> okay. So the first one I'm going to give you is Morgan Met. Civilization. Morgan Met. The Vikings? Mm, no. <laughs> I was going to say it something Germanic was, was in my mind. Yes. Very good. Germanic uh, base. It's the old English for morning meal. So very good. Very good, Sarah. Half a point to Sarah. Yay, Sarah. Uh, <laughs> Ariston. That one I would A-R-I-S-T-O-N. say Viking. Maybe? Not Viking. Kathy, do you have a guess? This is the name for a meal taken not long after sunrise, and it appeared in the Iliad. Oh. So it's Greek. Huh. Homer, Homer, Homeric Greek. This is hard. Um, I'm awful sorry. with early civilizations. <laughs> this, I'm modern it's Canadian still edu- history here. Still educational. <laughs> <laughs> You're learning. <laughs> okay. Uh, this next one is Pulmentus. Pulmentus. P-U-L-M-E-N-T-U-S. Pulmentus is I the name know. of the porridge. Uh, that was made from polenta, basically, oh. and was given to Roman soldiers. And the da- the interesting thing is that that's the name of the dish, but it also became the name of the meal time. Oh, interesting. Sounds kind of cool. Oh. Uh, so Roman soldiers ate polenta for breakfast. Basically, there's your corn meal. Kind of cool. Yeah, meal, meal <laughs> for meal time. <laughs> uh, okay, acratisma, acratisma. Oh my goodness. A k r a t i s m a. South America. I'm not sure. <laughs> I feel like I'm just going to say I'm not sure every time. Yeah, that's it. That <laughs> that's okay. Uh, this is a uh, classical Greece, uh, cl- classical Greek um, period, post-Homer, um, and it included barley, uh, barley bread dipped in wine, figs, olives, and even pancakes. So that's oh, kind of cool. Classical nice. Greece like is the earliest, re- I guess, record of. And the last one is. It's spelled genticulum, but I'm pr- pretty sure it's pronounced yenticulum, which would give you a hint of what language it is. It's Latin. Oh, mm. gosh. See, I'm terrible at these games, Adrian. <laughs> I'm <sorry. laughs> Take that. Kathy, were you the one that I've heard take Latin? I did, but God, that t- was like a thousand years ago. Yeah, J's are Y's, right? They're is that correct in Latin? Eyes. I can't remember. I think it's a specific... Uh, or J's or I's? Okay. I'm going to pronounce it the English way. <laughs> Genticulum is the Roman breakfast. It's the name for Roman <laughs> breakfast. And it was bread, cheese, olives, salad, nuts, raisins, cold meats, and wine, of course. The poet Marshall says that it was between 3 and 4 a.m., which is kind of crazy to me. But the po- more sensible poet, in my opinion, Claudius Semes, said that it was between 9 and 10 a.m. Okay, so from there... Our game is done. Don't worry. You both look really stressed (laughs) out. (laughs) Okay, so from there, our game is done. We're going to uh, move on to uh, an article that I found in researching breakfast, and this is where I spent most of my time, uh, called Much Depends on Toast. It's actually a chapter in the book called Making and Serving Breakfast in the Victorian Middle Class House Home uh, by Andrea Broomfield. That sounds great. And this chapter starts with instructions for toast. Yes, of course. So I'm going to read you some, (laughs) read you the instructions for toast. It's beautiful, and I'm very excited about it. Here we go. Toast, period. Procure a nice square of loaf of bread that has been baked one or two days previously, bracket, for new bread cannot be cut 
and would be very heavy, unbracket. Then with a sharp knife, cut off the bottom crust very evenly, and then, uh, and then as many slices as you require, about a quarter of an inch in thickness. Bracket, I generally use a carving knife for cutting bread for toast. Being longer in the blade, it is more handy and less liable to waste the bread. Close bracket, sorry. Uh, contrive to have a rather clear fire. Place a slice of bread upon a toasting fork about an inch from one of the sides. Hold it for a minute before the fire, then turn it, hold it before the fire for another minute, by which time the bread will be thoroughly hot, then begin to move it gradually to and fro <laughs> until the whole surface has assumed a yellowish brown color. When again, when again turn it, toasting the other side in the same manner. Then lay it upon a hot plate. Have some fresh or salt butter, bracket, which must not be too hard, as pressing it upon the toast would make it heavy, close bracket. Spread a piece, rather less than an ounce, over and cut it into four to six pieces, should you, uh, should you require six such slices for numerous family. About a quarter of a pound of butter would suffice for the whole, but cut each slice into pieces as soon as buttered and pile them lightly upon the plate or dish you intend to serve it. That was from Alexis Sawyer, The Modern Housewife, 1849. The author, Andrew Broomfield, and I agree that it was likely the Victorian period who formalized breakfast, not only as a mealtime, but also the menu of breakfast that we're familiar with today. Until the, Victorian uh, until the Victorian period, breakfast was sort of a random and varied uh, in time and varied in menu, especially for the poor and working classes who may have just not eaten or eaten what they could get their hands on. The names of the first meal of the day was also all over the place until about the 17th or 18th centuries, and the position of the church and doctors uh, at in throughout the medieval period were super complicated as well. For example, in 1274, Thomas Aquinas said about breakfast that breakfast was pray, poor, pear, pray, prepare, uh, <laughs> which is obviously a Latin word that I can't pronounce properly. And it is the name of the sin of eating too soon. There's oh, a there sin? There is a sin eating <laughs> too soon. Wow. According to Thomas Aquinas, which is obviously associated with gluttony, one of the seven deadly sins. But eating too soon yeah, is a sin. That, I'm in Oof. trouble. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, so that's 1274. Crazy. Thomas Aquinas and the church say breakfast is bad. It's a sin. In oh. 1542, but I, I think that Thomas Aquinas's opinion probably comes from the idea stemmed from gluttony in that you probably don't need breakfast if you don't need more than two meals a day. So this is where this kind of connects into a medical opinion in 1542. Dr. Andrew Board wrote that a laborer, quote, a laborer, uh, this is in old English, by the way. So wherever you hear an I, a word spelled with an I, there's a Y. All right, I thought that was interesting. Okay, quote, a laborer may eat, with an E, three <laughs> times a day uh, because his work was hard and he needed extra fuel to do his job effectively. But, uh, uh, but a, quote, rest man or a person of leisure should find that two meals a day, with an E, sufficient. 
And if one eats more often than twice, he lay, uh, he liveth a beastly life. <laughs> so don't eat more than two meals a day if you don't need to. <laughs> I need to. By the eight <laughs> 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 well, you I need to. People who eat, they say to eat multiple meals in a day. Yeah, six yeah. small meals or something. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think here we're talking about don't eat too much food. I mean, there's being specific in terms of like don't eat two meals a day but like meal to these medieval people probably meant like this is the food that i'm going to eat whereas for us it's like yeah we'll just like snack all day and not eat an actual meal uh by the 18th century though breakfast the breakfast that we're familiar with uh which included uh the fact that it was seated so you're probably sitting down to eat breakfast unless you're me and you're just you just stand i just honestly I don't have anywhere to sit, so I just make my coffee, make my breakfast, stand there and listen to the radio and then <laughs> continue on. Uh, anyway, breakfast was seated. It had coffee. And this is a really fun part. It had newspapers. And this is when uh, you don't obviously eat the newspapers, but you read the newspapers. Uh, and in the, it's in the 18th century that uh, breakfast becomes more of a status symbol. The activity of breakfast becomes a status symbol rather than just a nutritional nece- uh, necessity. So people mm-hmm. in the 18th century had forgotten what Thomas Aquinas said, obviously, uh, back in 1274. <laughs> uh, Rochefoucauld described a French breakfast, this is my favorite, in 1784. This is a French breakfast in 1784. I assume in the upper classes, quote, in the houses of the rich, yes, they're, okay, upper classes, yeah. In the, in the houses of the rich, you have coffee, chocolate, and so on. The morning newspapers are on the table, and those who want to do so read them during breakfast so that the conversation is not a lively nature. I like that. Not a lively nature. Yeah, me too. <laughs> he also <laughs> he also describes yeah. the mood. This is the mood, the vibe of breakfast. Quote, in the morning you come down in riding boots and a shabby coat. You sit where you like. You behave exactly as if you were uh, by yourself. No one takes any notice of you. And it is all extremely comfortable. End quote. I love that. Yeah, I'm going to come down for breakfast in my riding boots and a shabby coat from now on. (laughs) So basically, eat breakfast in your pajamas and, you know, have some time to yourself, basically. Don't pay attention to anyone else. Definitely don't have any serious conversation. I would agree with that. That that always reminds me of, uh, yeah, for sure. That always reminds me of, like, the 50s cartoons or family shows where, you know, the dads are reading the newspaper at the... Uh, breakfast table and then the kids come in and like poke out poke it or like or somebody has gone and cut the article out already and like that's the gag yeah. so yeah that's a good time this is like the scene in pride and prejudice where yeah. they're sitting at the breakfast table and elizabeth bennett shows up in her muddy petticoats from having walked from her home to their house because her sister was sick and they're all shocked almost like what the heck is she doing here at this time of day? Yeah. <laughs> We're having breakfast, for God's sakes. Here. Don't disturb yeah. us. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great example. Exactly. Good movie yeah, edition. That's perfect. 
So from there, I kept reading, and I unfortunately, like you, Kathy, I didn't get a chance to finish the chapter, so I'll have to go back later and finish because it's actually really well written and, and really interesting. Uh, I ran out of time, of course. But from there, I went on to the working class in Victorian England, uh, of course, because, again, this idea that, like, the Victorians have established a lot of the traditions and sort of way we live our lives today still kind of around, so that's kind of cool. So the uh, working class Victorian England's in England, like me... They ate as much food as they could afford for breakfast. Uh, and it was popular for urban laborers, also like me, to eat on their way to work. And food vendors took advantage. That's me. Apparently in London in the 18... 18- yeah. I barely in get London a breakfast. The- That's the reason I'm saying that. I you usually just- eat like a liquid breakfast. And I'm just like, I'm trying to eat as I shove the kids out the door, you know? Yeah, exactly. Perfect. You're exactly like a Victorian laborer. Oh, Absolutely. great. <laughs> You live the exact same life. I'm a Victorian lady, everyone. A Victorian lady. Yes, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sorry, Mrs. Beaton, again. We're not striving to be a Mrs. Beaton Victorian. We're definitely more successful at being a a working class urban laborer. Uh, In the 1850s, it was recorded there was was over 300 food vendors, breakfast food vendors on the streets of London. Nice. In 1850. So people really uh, got their breakfast on the go, which is kind of neat. I wouldn't have associated uh, fast food with the Victorian period, but um, this is how it went. So the food vendors would sell coffee or hot chocolate, and the uh, Victorian laborers would, or sorry, urban laborers would um, drop by and start with their coffee, down their coffee because it wasn't a to-go mug. (laughs) It was the mug of the vendor. So you had to down your drink and then put your mug back and then you take your uh, food, which was wrapped in whatever, like maybe wax or or, um, newspaper, and then you ate on the go. So you had to down your coffee. It's kind of opposite. If I'm getting fast food, I usually eat quickly where I am and then take my coffee and go. So that's kind of kind of a neat this development. It's too hot there. to down it. Yeah. yeah. Could you imagine? So industrialization really pushed that forward, right? Because uh, the day of the urban labor laborer became really regimented and people had to sort of appear to work at a specific time. So yeah, you didn't, you kind of ate when you could, which was um, on the road. And the most popular of the breakfast from the food vendors were a slice of bread and butter or a a slice of currant cake, which means we're allowed to eat cake for breakfast. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, (laughs) uh, Boiled egg for a penny or a ham sandwich for two pence. Uh, Also, BAPS. I don't know if you guys are familiar with BAPS. Uh, BAPS are a Scottish and Irish word for a roll. Uh, and they, I guess they're specific because they're they're really popular because they're good at holding sausage, fried <gasps> egg, and oh, ham. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'd call it like a Cornish pa- pasty. Yeah, yeah okay. I think that's so also best. a similar, <laughs> yeah. similar, um, yeah, exactly the same kind of. You know, with Cornish bacon. pasties, right? They have like the rolled part on the side that the workers used to because they'd have dirty hands and they'd hold on to that part and and then then eat it and they could throw that part out of the bread yeah 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 those were same kind of thing of course then we got to the middle class and this is a little bit closer to mrs beaton but i still think not much because the mention of servants doesn't come until the uh when the article later goes on to the upper classes so again i think mrs beaton is like treading that line of like upper middle class 
properly um, mobile because you you're not really uh, yeah. sure how to tr how to act around servants and how to have servants. Exactly. You need a manual to tell you how to have servants, essentially. So exactly. So like all class performance, the middle class breakfast was class performance, and uh, of course nutrition too. But the middle class Victorians really elevated breakfast to the most important meal of the day with lots of symbolic significance, as you can imagine. Mealtimes were a way to differentiate themselves from those below them. Of course, all those urban laborers are on the street eating their breakfast, walking to work, but you were seen as you know, middle class or upper class if you were seated for breakfast. The quality of toast was used as a measurement for the mistress of the house and her ability to showcase orderliness, punctuality, uh, diligence and efficiency in running the house and meals on time. I ran out of time, of course, and I don't want to take up too much more time, but a lot is tied up in food, money, leisure, uh, and time in the sort of the class differences. And I guess food was a big way to make a different, a good way to make a splash to make sure that you were seen as not lower than For you are. For sure, yeah, yeah. Still is. Still, yeah. Still is, yeah. Uh, still <laughs> still is, yeah. Uh, going back Going back to BAPS, BAPS reminded me of the Egg McMuffin because it's ex essentially, if you think of what a BAPS is, I wondered is, how we BAP were going to get roll, there. It's a popular. <laughs> <laughs> so BAPS were popular and they uh, were really good at holding sausage, fried egg, and ham. That's an Egg McMuffin essentially without the cheese. So BAPS reminded me, of course, of the Egg McMuffin, which was introduced by McDonald's in 1972 by Herb Peterson. It almost didn't happen because he wouldn't reveal what it was to the McDonald's bosses. He made them come and taste it. And they looked at it and said, that's crazy. We're not doing this. And then they tasted it and they said, that's awesome. So then they marketed it. That got me to, of course, all day breakfast, which is super important because, of course, breakfast is the best meal of the day. It's the most important meal of the day. We should be eating it all day. And so there's our all day breakfast. Uh, McDonald's introduced all day breakfast in 2015 in the USA, but not in Canada until 2017. I remember that glorious day. Really? I was able to get McDonald's breakfast after 10, after 11. The, and of course, most of the fast food joints now offer all day breakfast. Uh, and I think Tim Hortons was the last to join the all day breakfast uh, wagon in 2019. All day breakfast, breakfast originated. <laughs> they were super late. All, yeah. all day breakfast. I remember like people were asking forever for that to happen. All day breakfast originated at Taco Bell, believe it or not. Okay. They... <laughs> they, began, <laughs> they began serving their breakfast burrito uh, all day, and then McDonald's was basically forced to take them on. So Taco Bell's the industry leader there wow. on all-day breakfast. But McDonald's really took, took, the, took the market yep. into the all-day breakfast um, land. In 2020, unfortunately, like many things, McDonald's suspended all-day breakfast temporar temporarily in the USA, and in both Canada and the USA, temporarily suspended uh, some of their menu. And this was all to help facilitate physical distancing in its kitchens. Huh. And that's where I ended. All right. Okay, Sarah. Okay. Take us through your research. Oh, my goodness. So the history, the, the article. So it was done by Sherry McMillan for the History Magazine in England. And so I found it kind of interesting because it's called What Time is Dinner? Um, because cool. 
and so it went through various things of you know people having breakfast and when they have breakfast is obviously when they wake up and then um you you touched upon this a bit too adrian is you know lunch there wasn't such a thing as lunch that lunch was actually called dinner at the time and then supper was your evening meal and mm. um she talks a bit about how obviously your class changes when you eat um especially you know back when you know there was more of like um the laborers and then the noble nobility and that sort of class work so um you know talking about people from the labor time period or labor class would have a quick breakfast of porridge or you know, toast, whatever they could have stale bread. And then, um, you know, they would work from basically sun up until, you know, they got hungry and, and lunch, what we would call lunch, but they called dinner was usually around the noon to two o'clock period. And, um, that would be the biggest meal of the day actually at that time, mm. um, during this kind of medieval time, I guess. And then supper would be the one that you would have before nightfall, of course, because at that time, you know, they had candles, um, not electricity, but even some people didn't have candles, right? Because you couldn't afford it, perhaps, or you maybe have, you know, a fire and that was your light until bedtime. And so they would eat something very quickly and then they'd go to bed. Um, so so dinner time being the, the exciting thing. But then as um, the upper class, who did have lots of candles or, you know, had the ability to stay up late. And so as they stayed up late, um, they, w so here, so they stayed up late. So they would have supper more in the morning time, like early morning, like three o'clock or four o'clock or, you know, middle of the night for us. So then they would sleep in and they wouldn't have their breakfast until much later, which then pushed dinner later. And so now as time goes on, they changed name of dinner to being what we know now as dinner right um wow. and that lunch was mostly uh, a feminine thing so the women who normally had to get up early uh this again kind of talking about the noble class or the higher class mm. the women who had to get up early um would get hungry right they wouldn't they'd have their breakfast you know they'd have to get up with the kids or something like that or you know um they would um cr they had like a, another meal before dinner and they ended up calling it the luncheon the lunch uh period or that's what they would do and it was kind of um seen by many men to be uh very feminine and so uh you know in the 18 early 1800s when the prince of wales started lunching with ladies they kind of thought it was very <laughs> effeminate and um you know men would say that you know you're not manly if you're eating <laughs> lunch which i thought was really quite funny um and then you know i talked to about uh, how that progression changed and then like the emergence of tea time and so you had talked a bit about tea time and tea time was sort of created because of um, the distance between um, what would be dinner or lunch to us and then um, supper, what we call supper. So they created a tea time, which is usually what, three or four o'clock in the afternoon, I think. Um, and so I thought that was all very interesting of the, the naming of the different times and dinner, which now we call dinner in the, in the evenings and such. Um, so I really enjoyed kind of researching the time period and, and how that worked. And then from there, I was actually, I tried to do some digging into what other 
group, like I was interested in particular about if there was anything out there on uh, First Nations and whether Ooh, there's meal times yeah, in yeah. comparison, right? And unfortunately, I didn't find anything in that because I was trying to be very quick about it. Uh, I didn't mm -hmm. find anything. I found lots about, you know, the meals that they ate, but not about whether there was certain timings of when they ate, which, I mean, you can assume it could be some could have been something similar to uh, relation to time, right, with the mornings and light and darkness and stuff. Um, but I was really hoping to find something along those lines. And then I tried to sort of, sort of fast forward into the 1950s. Um, and cool. while I was kind of looking at, you know, the 1800s a bit, I did a talk recently on our 1812 collection. So I was looking into some 1812 stuff. But um, So I have a question specifically to 1812. Would officers not eat lunch then? Well, there would be a lunch, but it was called dinner, right? Oh, right. So okay. they would have their dinners. And the thing that's interesting is the military, too, they had rations, right? Right. So they had to follow rations, and, and the officers could only supplement their rations if they bought other food, right, with their own money. But they didn't right. get paid very well anyways, unless you were an officer, actually. But the regular soldiers wouldn't have been paid very well. Um, right. But I did find out, interesting enough, that I found this interesting because I didn't know this before, is that when the soldiers were here in 1812, a lot of them had lots of meat in their meals because of um, the agriculture, like the farming here with animals and stuff was very strong. Um, so much so even in the United States, it might not have been as strong as it was in Canada. So wow. soldiers who might have been stationed elsewhere with the British Empire might not have had m as much meat in their diet as they if they were stationed here in Upper Canada. So I found that really interesting. And then- Of course, cause like they're not gonna ship food, you know, all over the place you're going to eat what's around you exactly that's real that's neat well that's the so big I guess thing like, right is eating what is around you and, and what the farming yeah. is around you which kind of goes with first nations as well right so i wonder if people if any meat lovers wanted to be stationed specifically and like put me in canada so i can have some steak yeah so they had some good beef right uh, beef and mutton of course right mutton. yeah oh my gosh so that's cool it was interesting so then i was sort of i i started looking into etiquette a bit because etiquette is very closely tied and misbeaten of course but then I started to shift up to the 1950s and found it very interesting well because the other part of this the research also was talking about how women would spend so much time on food so I brought this up a bit earlier um, and they'd be you know making the breads and you know before going to bed you'd make the dough so that it could rise or you'd be you know cooking or baking it in the morning and baking bread like every day right which not, no one really does anymore um, well, during COVID, a lot of people probably <laughs> yeah. right? All their sourdough yeah. stuff. Sourdough starter. Yeah, which I didn't do myself. But no. uh, <laughs> yeah, so I found that, you know, the, the evolution of that and, and um, you know, preparing meal and they would be milking the cows and they'd be harvesting from their, everyone had gardens, right? Everyone was pulling from their gardens. But then you get to times like, um, the 1950s you're finding somewhat the similar thing right women aren't so much in in the workforce but they're they're purchasing food and stuff and still making sure that every meal is this pristine beautiful meal with a set table and you know kind of nice and and i found that interesting but also with the etiquette um and i thought it was interesting compared to now is that the etiquette through the ages showed uh especially with say middle to upper class of dinner time is time to be 
quiet and have civilized conversation, but most of the time, especially in the 1950s, right, it's like everyone, like the kids are seen and they eat, but they don't talk. Um, and, you know, um, dad kind of rules the roost. He's the one there, picturesque, cutting the turkey or the roast <laughs> or whatever that the mom has made. And the mom maybe is stressed out because she needs to make sure that dinner is perfect. Um, and I found that interesting because, I don't know, in comparison to my family, dinner time, especially those Sunday dinners that I talked about, we always had Sunday dinner was a big roast meal. It was a time for conversation. We, it was a bit, my dad was a politician, so there was a lot of politics discussed, a lot of heated discussions, and that happens nowadays, right? And so this is where I wanted to compare to nowadays. There's a lot of um, discussions, sometimes maybe family fights break out during a meal time, and, um, and you know, just a comparison of back then and, and how it is. So then I decided, too, to see what time people eat dinners, right? So before it was very much <laughs> determined by the light of the day or whether you had candles or fire. And today, it probably depends mostly on your schedules, right? So for instance, I eat breakfast probably about seven o'clock um, because my kids get up early and we're all eating early. So when I get to work <laughs> for nine or 9.30, I'm starving half the time. Yeah. Um, so I eat probably more meals and um, Mrs. Beaton would think I'm awful. Um, but then, you know, I eat lunch. <laughs> Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas would be very upset with you. <laughs> that's what it was. That's who it was. <laughs> that's right. And uh, Sin of eating too early. <laughs> yeah. So then I eat uh, lunch around 11.30, 12, and then maybe a small snack at 3, and then I, we eat dinner at like 5.36, and I'm like starving. And although usually frowned upon, I try not to do it, but I sometimes have like a bedtime snack and then go to bed and stuff. So I had asked, I did a poll with my family to see nice. what other people <laughs> did in my, at least my family. I mean, I should have opened it up to more, but most of them ate their meals between eight and nine. Their morning breakfast was probably between eight Ooh, and nine. That feels late. I thought that was late too, right? I might, so. I might eat that late on the weekend. That's but. true. Yeah, yeah. The dog has me up at six, so and that doesn't matter what day of the week it is. So I'm hungry, like when I wake up. Yes. So, so. I thought that was, in, but they they also all live fairly close to their work places. Too. Right. So that might be. Well, that different. that's it does make a difference. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, if you're today today, you could be like a one of those urban Victorians, and if you have an hour and a half commute, if you're driving to Toronto or something like that, you're going to stop for a coffee or something like that. Exactly. But if you're if you're if your commute is only five minutes, then yeah, eat whenever you want. To the bedroom. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> to the bedroom. <laughs> you're commuting <laughs> to the home to office. To the home office. Yeah. One minute before you have to be at work. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's one benefit I would say is I can eat something and just get start work and make yeah. my coffee. You know, anyways. Um, and then their lunch was usually new. Some of them said noon to one and, and one to two. And then others said dinner was usually at six and or some of them seven. And I eat dinner. If I'm not eating by like 5.36, me and my kids are all like dying of hunger. So I thought that was an interesting comparison. Then I did a follow-up question to say, which was your largest meal of the day? Because Adrian and most of the common stuff out now is breakfast is the most important. That's the biggest meal. It should be your biggest meal. Um, whereas they, most of them responded that dinner is their biggest meal of yeah. the day. And I would say probably my biggest meal of the day is dinner as well. <laughs> I would say that for me, breakfast and dinner are probably equal, hmm. but my lunch is like nothing. 
I almost I have a very small salad for lunch. That's it. Which so. some of the research that I did too with the like the meals and the timing is the dinner, which was the lunch, right, was your yeah. biggest meal of the day. So the middle of the day was your biggest meal for nobles and for the laborers. Laborers because they did a, you know maybe six hours of work and then they have to do another five or six again, yeah. right? Because they didn't have the same schedules as us. <laughs> but I found that funny uh, that dinner at lunch is what it was called. It was okay. their biggest That's meal. Okay. And uh, for laborers and for noble, you know, people at the very around that time period, right, medieval or a little bit later, is that's their biggest meal because of you know their work schedules and such, and trying to have a quick supper before bed. Whereas now, you know, we got electricity. We're like, yeah, we can eat whenever we want, <laughs> right? That's true. I have eaten at like that's nine so o'clock true. at night. Try not to, but I have. <laughs> well, yeah, and when we have our family gatherings now, which well, not now because of COVID, but usually when we do, it's. It's late sometimes, and I'm like, my kids should be going to bed, but whatever, we're partying and eating late, sort of like the nobles or the elite used to do back in the day. It's so interesting, too, how food has, like, regulated our workday, maybe like a traditional uh, workday. I rarely have a meeting scheduled at noon. It's true. Rarely. That's very true. I I mean, that's maybe our, yeah, (laughs) that's our particular workplace culture, but I doubt most... Well, maybe, I don't know. I could be totally wrong. Maybe people love a lunch meeting, but yeah. Or no. even those webinars <laughs> that you get, professional webinars that are lunch. And I'm like, oh, come on, it's at noon. It's I, don't to, I don't want to work and eat. <laughs> I want to go socialize, you know. Yeah, but one, exactly. one other thing I was going to point out, and I had touched upon mm-hmm. this before with the research, was the um, like the women in the workplace and how, you know, from the 1950s moving forward, how it became more common with women um, being out working and not being home to prepare for those meals, right? So the history, they were making their meals and such. Um, Like myself, my husband, God bless him, he's like the one who makes a lot of our meals because he's he's home before me, right? And it's sort of like, we got to get eaten and we got to get the kids eaten. So whoever's home first is the one who makes the meal. And if I may say for quality purposes, I do clean up the meals. But, you know, <laughs> it's good. sort of interesting how now with a lot more women in the workplace where me- meal times might fluctuate for some families depending on equality and, yeah. you know, tasks like in the, the, stress in the of relationship. Life. Right. The stress right? of your life or, is trying to figure out what you're going to do for dinner when you get home. <laughs> and how dinner, long is right? it going to take? I can totally see why Instapot and Crock-Pots and all of those are so popular because you can prepare that before you get there and it's ready to go as soon as you get home. If you have to make or you're just this crazy elaborate thing that's going to take 45 minutes, you don't have time for yeah. that. It's going to be 7 o'clock by the time you eat dinner. Yeah, and you're starving. Or you're, <laughs> you're just like me. Take all the indecisive out of it and eat the same thing every day. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't eat the same, but my most meals are very similar. They're not the same food, but they're very similar in style so that I don't have to think about Smart. it. I'm not, I don't like, I, as you know, listeners know, I not me and Stephanie not don't belong in the kitchen. So. <laughs> I heard about that with Stephanie. Yeah. <laughs> Now everybody in the region knows. I know. I'm a Steph big fan does not of like Steph. cooking. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Steph. That's well, awesome. I do like to cook meals. It's just I'm not the one first one home uh, during mm-hmm. the week. Mm-hmm. So at least during the week, but right. yeah. 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 Interesting. This awesome. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. That was incredible. Uh, thanks for sharing your research. Thanks for joining in the fun with us. Thank you. 
We'll catch you soon. Yes, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun, guys. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for coming down the rabbit hole for some munchy historical treats. Make sure to subscribe to One Hour in the Past and the museum's other podcast, Museum Chat Live, on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, so you don't miss any of our yummy historical adventures. We're always looking for ideas to spend one hour in the past researching. If you have a topic you'd like to see us tackle, connect with us at www.facebook.com slash St. Catherine's Museum or at STC Museum on Twitter and Instagram. We're so looking forward to chatting with you all again on our next episode of One Hour in the Past. One Hour in the Past is produced by us, Kathleen Powell and Adrian Petrie, and brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre and the City of St. Catharines. <laughs>